Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Rooted Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Panetta. We are in studio today, downtown in Salem, Oregon, and we have a great show lined up. Uh, our co-host, Salam Noor, is in studio. Salam, you want to say hi? Hi, Chris. <laughs> and our guest as well is sitting right across from me, and so I'll introduce him in a second. But I just want to give my spiel on what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. Our podcast uh, is connected directly to our Leadership Institute, and Salem is home to to Groundwork, uh, or Groundwork's home to Salem. Am I getting that the right way? So long. <laughs> uh, groundwork is here within our community, and uh, we started a couple of years ago, and the goal was to do a couple of things. First, to raise the tide of leadership in our community, but our vision really is to create conditions for transformational change, and our part in doing that is to provide a space and an environment where leaders can grow together, come together, and address some of our community's uh, challenges while addressing their own and in, in their individual organizations and even families. Uh, and so that's that's why we're doing all of this. Um, and we love to be a part of it and we feel really blessed to do it. Uh, but with that, let's get right into the episode today. So today we want to talk about an array of things. We just had a, a guest speaker at, what was it, two months ago? Justin, you were with us? Right, in October. In October? Yeah. October. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. yeah. So Justin Allen, he was our, he's a, first of all, he's an alumni of Groundwork, our very first year. So One you're of as, the OGs. Yeah, he's you're, an you're OG. as they That's call right. him, an OG uh, to Groundwork. <laughs> and you can really embellish that if you want to. <laughs> uh, and so he's an alumni, but in our institute, we have alumni that come back and act as panelists or presenters. So he was a presenter in October and it was probably one of our best. I'm being out. It was. I'm not just saying this, Justin, it was so good. Just everything came together that day, but your, your bit was, was so good. There was was a lot of fun. There was people there that said, does this guy speak professionally? Does he do this professionally? Cause I'll, I'll pay him to go and. (laughs) Well, they came up to us. (laughs) They came up to us last month, actually last week, and they were still talking about your presentation, its relevance, its significance, how it affected them. So it was, it was great. It was great. So yeah. I want to, I, I bring that up because we want to dive into some of the things that, sure. that Justin covered. Uh, but just to introduce you, Justin, COO of Neighborly Ventures here in our community. Um, I know you have quite a bit of experience in leadership from where you came before. Um, and, you know, you and I, uh, we went to the same church. So I got to see yeah. you kind of in that setting and you're just, just a, an outstanding person. Um, and uh, I know you have a wonderful family. Um, so just tell us more about who you are, uh, what you do. You can start with either one of those questions, what you do and then who you are. Yeah. Uh, first off, just really glad to be here with, with you both today. Uh, this is a a neat experience and, uh, the groundwork program was, uh, was very helpful for me. I went into it, uh, uh, looking at it a little bit like, uh, doing an MBA. I did an Mm -hmm. MBA several years ago and, um, I thought I was going to learn all the best business principles that were out there. And I thought, oh, great. What more can I learn from this? And, uh, so I don't know that I went into it really necessarily with the best attitude, um, probably because I was going into the student versus the teacher mm-hmm. uh, mindset. And really what I discovered, it was, it was a great group of people trying to do something better for the community, for themselves, for the organizations. And I learned a lot of really key principles that they just don't teach in business classes. Uh, there's a difference between skills and capabilities, mm-hmm. as I've been learning over my lifetime. And skills is where you take the hammer and you can hammer the nail really well. And capability is where you take the hammer and the nail and you build something with it and you build it correctly. And I feel like the Groundwork Program did a really good job of taking those basic business leadership management skills that exist out there that are taught in the academic environment 
and allowing people to apply it in a way where they increase their capabilities as a as a leader and manager. So I was I was thrilled to be part of the program last year and it was really fun coming back too. Yeah, thanks for saying those nice things. Yeah, yeah, I really feel that way. It was it was there were some transformative moments for me at at some of the uh, uh, presentations. Um, even during the depths of COVID, when we're all quarantined, mm-hmm. doing the whole thing, um, but it was it was very helpful for me and, and and changed a lot of the way this that I work with people and the way I choose to lead and manage our organization. Yeah, that's great. Well, tell us more about um, your background. You know, yeah. just professionally, okay, what you do now and where you came from. Yeah, so I started out um, about twenty years ago doing um, healthcare management. So that was on uh, managing both uh, the property and the business altogether. Uh, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I was very grateful for my uh, my first employer uh, bringing me in. And uh, he had an interesting, I, I was new and out of college. And I, 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 didn't, I didn't know anything about leadership or management. And he was going to have me manage a, a small healthcare facility. And there were doctors and nurses there and people that have been working there for 20, 30 years and had, you know, full-blown careers. And I, I didn't hardly know a pill from a, you know, from a, from a Band-Aid. And I, I was a little confused as to why I was being hired. And he hired many people just like me, um, this, 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 cor- this organization did. And so I was a little confused about it. And I remember he was about to um, uh, have me start. And he said, listen, there's something you need to know. He says, you are never going to outsmart some of the people you're working with. These are brilliant people you're working with. They have way more experience than you do. You will never be able to keep up with their intelligence and their capabilities, their skill sets that they have, you're never going to do it. You're fresh out of college. You don't know nothing. So why did we hire you? And I didn't really answer, but I kept thinking, <laughs> well, I, was like, yeah, I was like, well, I really don't have any confidence now about this. <laughs> and uh, he said, I hired you because what you can do is you can show people that you care more about their success, their individual success, and about the success of this organization and the outcomes of these patients than anyone else on the planet. If you can do that, these people will figure out a way to follow you. You've got to figure out how to do that yourself. And uh, he was right. You know, I mean, there was a lot of technical things I needed to learn. There was a lot of uh, opportunities for me to make mistakes. But in the end, what mattered most was when those doctors, nurses, technicians, uh, family members of patients and patients, uh, the reason why they did what they did or at least worked with me is because they felt like I had their interest at heart more than anyone else they knew. And that I was interested in finding an outcome that worked best for them and for us together. And as I got better at that, uh, and, and then I combined with the knowledge and skills that you get along the way, um, it got to be kind of fun doing that. So I did that uh, for about, um, well, about 20 years. And then I had uh, I met up with a with an old friend I hadn't seen in over twenty years, uh, Brian Moore, who's also a um, a an, alum, an OG <laughs> uh, of the Groundwork Program, and uh, uh, he was living here in Salem, and I was living in Seattle at the time, and uh, he we, we got to know each other, and he uh, suggested we got talking about maybe we ought to work together in property management and development, and uh, the problem was is I lived in Seattle, not in Salem. But then over time, I couldn't let it go, and it seemed like an interesting idea. And Brian uh, espouses the groundwork ideas uh, pretty naturally, um, and so it was—it uh, seemed like the right opportunity for my for my wonderful family and myself to move to Salem. 
And uh, we've been here now for a little over two years, and it's been a great experience, um, both living here in Salem and working here with uh, Neighborly Ventures. Yeah, that's I, great. I think you had you were only here a couple months, and then we, you know, you were jumped right into groundwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it probably was. It was, I think, it was about six months. Yeah, and yeah. then jumped right into her. So, yeah, yeah, I'm curious. You know, um, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but mm-hmm. being new to a community, what was it like to be immersed with? These, these community leaders that have been around for a long time, I mean, some of them have been around for decades leading different nonprofits. What was that like coming into a community and then participating in a leadership program with those people also at the table? Yeah, well, I guess for a little bit of background, uh, part of the challenge for me was I had been living in Seattle, you know, a large metropolitan area mm-hmm. for uh, 12 years. And then I was coming into a considerably smaller environment uh, here in Salem. So there was a bit of an adjustment for me and my family. In fact, I, I remember the first day I was driving to work, I was a little behind, wanted to do a good job, be a good employee of Neighborly Ventures. And uh, I was used to Seattle traffic too, probably. <laughs> so there was someone that was in front of me, I remember driving from where I lived here in Salem to work. And I tailgated that person hard the whole way because they were driving slow. <laughs> What I didn't realize is I tail I followed them all the way to the parking lot where I was working. They parked in the same parking lot. And I, I told myself, Justin, you are not in Seattle. You are not anonymous anymore. You have to remember this is a this is a a highly people know each other here. Community. People know each mm-hmm. other. Yep. You have to remember that. And I had lived in small towns before and I'd forgotten that. So um yeah, I can't tailgate people anymore. Uh but the upside to that is like you talked about what at, at the groundwork program. You meet with these people that aren't just simply names and faces that that you meet with there in the program and you never see them again, but you actually work with them on a regular basis throughout the community. You see them where you're shopping, you see them at schools, you see them in recreational environments. Um, You end up doing things together with them in different Uh ways, not just simply for the program's sake, but just because you live in the same community and you depend on each other. And so... um, I, I really liked that. I really enjoyed getting to know people so quickly and being able to apply it together, mm. what we were learning. Yeah. When I, um, when I, uh, when I first moved here, you know, Salem's not teeny teeny, right. but it's definitely not right. big. I no. think, what are we, 200,000, something around <laughs> About, that. About, yeah. Uh, but similar, when I first got here, we were doing so many uh, outward mindset trainings, just loading those things. And within the first year, you know, it was a few hundred people that have gone, gone through and all of them had seen my face. So I, I got to the point where I stopped remembering, I couldn't remember everybody's name, but I could remember faces. And even now, you know, thousands of people have gone through those outward mindset trainings and I can't go anywhere without (laughs) running into somebody and they know exactly who I am. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. ah, yeah, everyone's famous in small town, whether you like it or not. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But Kenzie, my wife laughs because we go anywhere we go, somebody, somebody will, will, will know who I am. And, and, and Salam, you're probably the same way you've been working here in Salem for a long time. So. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's really what I love about Salem. It, it's, yeah. uh, it, I mean, it's, it's not a small town. It's a fairly large city, mm-hmm. but it does have a small, a small town feel mm-hmm. to it. And, and those personal relationships and connections that you, um, uh, you, you build are really important. Yeah. And, um, a lot of them have been around our kids and what they've been involved in, in terms of sports and music and, and other events. But uh, yeah, it's a great place to live. It is. And I'm glad you're here. Oh, I'm very glad to be here too. We've, we've really enjoyed it. been happy to be here and uh, we hope to be here for a long time. Yeah. 
So the last part of the question in the intro that I'd mm-hmm. like to ask folks if you're willing to answer is, you know, you kind of said what you do, but who are, who are you? You know, who is, sure. who is Justin? Okay. So I grew up uh, in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I didn't think it was all that unusual of an upbringing, but it turns out I think everybody has an unusual upbringing when they compare it to others, right? Everybody has a unique story and it's, it's such a, a fun thing to learn about how people grew up in different ways, what, what, what they learned from their upbringing, whether, you know, what challenges they faced and then what opportunities they had. And, and mine was, uh, I think what was unique about it or what I see as unique in my story is that I lived in the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, but I spent a large part of my summers on my grandfather's ranch and farm in the boot heel of New Mexico. And this is a corner of the world that is the least populous place in the lower 48 states. Um, and I'd only found only when I traveled to Alaska did I finally find a place that was least that was less populous than this area. And so I would spend my summers there working on his farm and his ranch, and then I'd go back to the city, you know, for school in the um, in the fall and winter. And so I'd had these very different experiences between the seasons with different kinds of people and and uh, uh, different experiences and different ways people lived. And I, I think that really kind of helped me. Uh, appreciate there's a lot of different ways yeah. to live this life and there's and it takes a lot of different kinds of people to pull it off too yeah uh and then i uh um my wife is from uh the boise area and we met in college and uh and then we started working uh like i said we started working my first job um in uh, utah and then we moved to seattle after that and along the way we um had six children i would have been fine i didn't i thought we wouldn't have any children in fact, I was okay if we didn't. I really liked her enough. And uh, <laughs> then I had one child, and I thought that was pretty amazing. And uh, then the second one, I was amazed that my heart actually had room for a second child. Like, it, it just expanded. You know, it, I didn't cut my heart in half, but it expanded. And then I made a really interesting mistake on child number three. Uh, my son, John, he was born. And, you know, you get these daddy vibes when when a child is born. Mm-hmm. And, oh, that little baby was born and came out, and I was holding him. And I looked right at my wife, Allie, and I said, let's have another. <laughs> <laughs> so from then on, I kept, you know, and so, uh, yeah, we kept having more wonderful children. We have six children. My oldest is uh, 21 and my youngest is uh, seven. And um, our youngest, we always say he is, um, he is the last, but if he was our first, he would have still been our last. <laughs> so my mom learned a lot from him. Yeah, yeah. 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 It means you have a busy life. Yeah, we like it. With it's, lots of uh, activities and exciting mm-hmm. things happening all the time. Lots of opportunities to grow. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you can't make next baby decisions when you're holding a cute little newborn because it's always a yes. Let's yeah. have another. <laughs> well, she didn't feel that way at the time. She had just given birth. So she was the last thing she wanted to do. Yeah. But for yeah. me, I was really But for us, yeah. Yes, that's right. Those yeah. daddy vibes are mm-hmm. strong. Yeah, I always feel helpless in those moments. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Very special moment. It's so yeah, special, yeah. right? But mm-hmm. yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Justin, uh, for, for sharing and um, a little bit more about who you are and, and your background. Cause I think all of that adds to what, uh, what you've brought to groundwork and what you brought just recently, you know, as a presenter and it, you know, I know you know this, but th- that role of coming in as an alumni, sharing these principles, being a presenter, I mean, it just adds tremendous value to the overall experience um, and to this network and this this alumni, this family that we're we're bringing and and we're we're creating, you know, because our our vision is one day that we have hundreds and hundreds of of alumni in our community, and that's what 
you know, those are conditions for transformational change in, in our opinion, but just, it brought tremendous value. And just to give context to listeners, you know, we have, we meet once a month, we talk about each time we come, we build relationships and then we have a, a, a kind of an education session there. And that's when we have a guest presenter that comes in uh, and we, we typically like them to relate what they're going to talk about to our framework, obviously. And this particular section was in our weeds section where we've been talking and kind of dissecting conflict a little bit more over the last several months. And and so you had the task of how do you take something like operations, uh, you know, from this leadership perspective, relate it to conflict, relate it to weeds. And so your your whole presentation really came to, and we were talking about this before, is what's the difference between growing people and problem solving? Uh, because a lot of folks, especially with that have a role of operations, which a lot of our leaders in this cohort do because their CEOs came last year. And so now the number two, usually a C, a, you know, a operations individual is coming. And so everybody has, that's what they're dealing with all day is weeds. And so I know that was kind of your approach is here's a bunch of people that know all too well what, what conflict is, because that's what they're doing all day is right. putting out the fires and problem solving. That's how they got the job. Uh, yeah. In most cases, uh, you, you move your way through operations because you, uh, you are willing to accept responsibility <laughs> for problems and you tend to make pretty good decisions about solving those problems. And so what are you rewarded with? More problems. Right. <laughs> and right. so you get more and more bigger and bigger problems along the way. And you start developing this, this, uh, this mindset, you know, like, I solve problems. I'm really good at solving problems. In fact, I'm fantastic at it. Bring on more problems. You get to a certain point, there's just only so much capacity a human being has for solving problems. And you have to start figuring out really fast how to help, how to use other people or how to use their skill sets, the genius that they have to help solve these problems. Because you're getting to where there's the volume of problems is too many and the complexity of the problems is too great. These are the problems that nobody else can solve when you get to the COO level or into that director role. Right. And so you, you, you've got to um, recognize that you're not in that position because you're necessarily a great problem solver, but because you're good at teaching people how to solve problems. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is really the, the essence of, of being in that role, quite frankly, and the meaning of leadership. And you said this, you know, do you want to be in the business of growing people or problem solving? Mm -hmm. Because the problem solving part is a technical part. The growing people part is really the, the adaptive and transformational part. Yeah. So I, I really appreciated your, your story, uh, your personal story and how you arrived at that idea that your job as an operations person is to really help people figure out how to solve problems yeah. rather than solving the problem for them. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a couple of key things you have to do um, as a leader as you make this transformation from being somebody who's really good at solving problems and being and willing to be responsible for solving those problems to being somebody who can uh, lead a team to to uh, create systems and operationalize ways to to solve problems either to prevent the problems or or to solve things that come up and yeah I had an experience. Um, I mentioned that I, I used to spend my summers on my grandfather's, my grand grandpa's uh, farm and ranch, and I really wanted to be a farmer and rancher. I just loved being outdoors. I just, it was really fun for me to do it. I, I liked it. It was kind of a, uh, it was a complex life, but a simple life at the same time. And it was a lot of fun. And my grandmother absolutely refused to let me do it. And it wasn't until I was older, I started figuring out the the wisdom behind what she saw in it and she saw in me and 
and and just in in, in the difficulty of farming in that area um this is this boot hill of new mexico area is an incredibly arid landscape um it receives about uh seven to nine inches of rain a year uh the sun beats down all the time it's a fairly high elevation as well um the only farming that goes on is because there happens to be uh, a fair amount of um uh wells if you dig them really really deep you can mm-hmm. get enough water and this is where my grandma and grandpa decided to be farmers because the land was cheap and they and the the soil was good enough they thought they could make a go of it in that area and um they really struggled for the first couple of years as you can imagine it was very difficult for them and they were looking at um at failing and the bank taking over everything and my grandmother told me the story years later um and she said that uh she said you want to know why your grandfather figured this out because we i should say we had been talking and i had noticed over the years that my grandfather was really the only successful farmer in the area that was actually making a living out of it most everybody else was pretty much going through the cycle of a little bit of success failure a little bit of success failure a little bit of success failure and never really getting anywhere in what they're trying to do but my grandfather was one that was progressively every year a little bit better as a farmer a little bit better in the work he was doing to where he really created something quite successful in that valley and um she said she told me the story of what what he did is that a, a year or two in i suppose when they were looking at failure he was up one night and couldn't sleep as anyone would mm-hmm. in that situation and he woke up his wife my grandma lillian and said grandma or sorry lillian um i'm not a farmer and she said well no you're a farmer and, and he said, no, I'm not a farmer. And she says, well, that's probably true. I mean, the bank's going to foreclose here pretty soon. So that's probably true. You're not going to be a farmer. And he said, no, we're never going to make it as long as I see myself as a farmer. I have to see myself as someone in the water business. I'm in the water business. That's how we're going to make it. And she asked, what do you mean by that? And he said, I have to make sure that the water gets to the end of the row every day. If I can focus on that, we'll make it. And so he transformed the way he ran his business as a business leader. Instead of him running around and solving problems like farmers tend to do, fix this tractor, fix this leak, repair this over here, buy these seeds, do this, you know, just thousands of things that a farmer has to do just like any other business leader. Instead, he, he, he focused his work on getting the water to the end of the row. And he delegated out all the rest of his work to other people that needed to be done, whatever it was. And as a teenage boy, I thought my grandfather was the most boring farmer in the world, looking back on it. Because while other people were driving tractors and riding horses and doing really neat things, that's just the fun of being a farmer in the outdoors. We got in a pickup truck and we irrigated fields and then we drove around to the other side of the field and we counted rows to make sure the water was there. We did that in the morning and we did that in the evening. And in the middle of the day, we went and fixed all the ditches and the pumps, anything that involved water, anything that didn't involve water, somebody else did. And that was what he focused on. And I learned from that, that as a leader, we have choices throughout the day that we can make about what we're going to focus our time on, what problems we're going to solve. And as long as we focus on solving the problems that are in front of us first, the ones that come at us, then the day owns us or the problems own us. But if we focus on what we know is the key to our organization, that gets the water to the end of the row, that makes the organization run, we focus on that, count that, measure it, prioritize it. That can allow us then to teach, that gives us the capacity to teach other people how to be responsible for other areas, other problems that come up. That in turn grows the people so that they get new skill sets, 
It, it relies on their native genius. And I saw my grandfather's employees become very good at other areas, better than he mm-hmm. was at those areas. But that helped the whole operation move better. Yeah, I love that story. And when you shared it with our group, I immediately fell in love with it because it's just a great story in general, but it, it ties so well to our framework and, and the analogies that we use mm-hmm. uh, and to the specific topic that you had, obviously. Uh, and I want to get into to this a little more about you know what the water is and, and how might we identify it. But I'm just curious before getting into that, where's the, I mean, where's the failure usually at for, for leaders? I mean, is it just not the the focus that goes elsewhere to the tractors and the horses and and all these other things is that usually where where they fail and what does that look like kind of in a, in real life for a real leader that's facing all sorts of demands and stresses what is yeah. what is what does it look like to not be kind of hitting the hitting the mark yeah so i i what i interpret from your question is two things what is the source of this mm-hmm. uh, of of this way of doing things and then how do you kind of how do you identify when you're in this situation? Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, what leaders out there that are listening right now, you know, how, how do they know if they're, yeah. if they're the. Yeah. So are you, uh, I, I think a great example for, for me, I actually, for all that I learned from my grandmother and my grandfather about this, I, I remember early on as a leader being in this very situation where I was progressively solving more and more problems mm-hmm. and getting better at it, but the problems were coming faster at me than I could possibly solve them. And so I remember coming home and my wife asking me, what did you do today? And I didn't have time to answer a question because I had to run upstairs to go to the bathroom because I had not <laughs> peed all day long. Yeah. Neither had I eaten anything nor drank any water. And so after that was all done, I took care of those things. She said, what did you do today? And I said, I don't know. I don't know what I did today, but I know I worked very, very hard. And she said, well, what are you going to do tomorrow? I was like, probably the same thing. And I realized the day was running me. I was solving problems. I was very good at solving problems, but it wasn't working. I was not leading the business. Uh, Everything else was leading me. And all these people that were depending on me, like I said earlier, to care about them and to make them successful, I was slowly, um, I, I was slowly losing that ability to do that. And instead... I couldn't pay attention to people. I couldn't pay attention to the things they needed. I could only pay attention to the problems that were that were most manifest in that moment. So if you find yourself in the situation where you don't have time to think as a leader, you don't have time to strategize, uh, you find that everyone comes to you as the problem solver. Um, they see you as the genius that can solve all the problems. They see you as the person who has all the ideas. They see you as the person that has the keys to it. If when people don't know what to do, they come to you, then that's probably a sign that you've become mm-hmm. one of those leaders that's a great problem solver, but not a very good leader. Yeah. Or could you have an opportunity to yeah. be a better leader? I'm, I'm curious about um, your advice to, to leaders that find themselves in that situation and how they actually get out of it. Because yeah. they start... I mean, when your employees and your colleagues are coming to you to solve problems, there is a sense of validation that comes from It's a drug. It's a total drug. It it is. It is. It's like, and you find yourself, actually, some people look forward to that because they have purpose, they have meaning, they're doing something productive. Mm -hmm. But being a leader, from what I hear you saying, uh, Justin, is a different role. It's a different level of responsibility. 
it has its own purpose within an organization or a community or even a family, if you will. Mm -hmm. So talk about, you know, how do leaders get out of that predicament that gives them validation, it gives them purpose, and it gives them value and play a different role. Yeah. That is really the essence of leadership. Yeah. And that really gets to the key of the issue, right? Because you, so you're on this drug, you're hooked on this drug of solving problems and it feels really good. Uh, at the same time, you also know you're drowning and you got to figure out how to get out of this. And so you start typically like all of us do, like I did, you start by just saying no to people, right? I'm not going to solve that problem. And so what happens? People get mad at you. Like, wait a minute, that guy, that lady, she used to solve problems for me really well. And now she's not helping me out. Get her out of here. Get him out of here, right? Right. And so our first reaction is, I've had enough of this. I'm not doing any more. I'm not solving your problems anymore. And that just doesn't go over well. Uh, doesn't go over well for you or for the other people. So my experience, what I've learned, and some of it I learned in Groundwork last year, was how to actually reverse this horrible whirlpool <laughs> that goes yeah. on and get it to where it's, it's going in the other direction, where instead you're kind of spiraling up as opposed to spiraling down. And I think there's three things that we, we talked about in that presentation that, that you can do. And one is you focus on purpose versus policy as a leader. The other one is you focus on uh, an idea that Liz Wiseman in a book that she has called Multipliers, um, are you a multiplier or diminisher? And then the other one is the way that you hold teams and individuals accountable. And those three things, if you can do them a little bit differently, and we talked about in the presentation, what you do differently to begin step-by-step step to reverse that horrible whirlpool to get it spiraling up in the other direction where instead of you solving problems, you're spending most of your time as a leader growing people because that's where most of your time should be spent right. in growing people as opposed to solving problems. Yeah, I'm. Um, hopefully we get into each of those three a little bit more, but uh, I had a question. You know, you said something about um, the day owning us. Yeah. You know? Uh, and I think while maybe a lot of us, you know, there might be a lot of listeners out there, you're not in an operational role. You're not a, let's say a leader in your organization. You might just be a, you know, uh, you could be anything, right? You mm -hmm. could, uh, you could have any role in any organization. You may be, uh, you may be thinking of your parenting or a relationship that you have. And, and I think that this can relate to us no matter what is the yeah. day owning us. Yeah. And I think that a lot of us experience that. I certainly do, um, where our day owns us or our job owns us or this certain dynamic relationship we're in owns us. I remember being a you know a college athlete and the sport owned me, uh -huh. owned my emotions, owned everything. You know, I, I, I would be unhappy if something went wrong and it just, it owned everything that I, that I had. And it was just, I look back and I'm like, man, I missed out on so many, uh, uh, opportunities to connect and to learn because I was too busy um, letting it own me. Uh, so I think a lot of people can relate to that. Mm -hmm. And that's the that's the slump that I think is really hard to get out of um, is taking power back without just saying no. Because it's really easy to say no, mm -hmm. right? But there's still part of just saying no that still allows it to own us because you know we can't just say no to everything. No. Uh, and so there's this balance that we have to have of of not letting the day or the circumstance own us, but still being present in it, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's the slump that people get into. Well, and I want to be careful here. 
I don't have this figured out, right? This is this is something that we're all learning how well, we to do. We thought you did, Justin. Yeah. That's why you're on the show. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Surprise. All right, we're done. Yeah, that's right. It, it, this is something we all have to learn. I mean, I, I'm learning it professionally. I'm learning it in my personal life. Uh, uh, we all deal with this, and the scenarios in our lives change all the time, right? Um, when I'm at my best in, in terms of doing this, um, it's when I remember, why am I solving these problems? It isn't because I want a badge that says I solve problems better than anybody else. It's because there's usually some human relationship that matters to me at the end of the, on the other side of that problem. There's someone I know or know of that I'm trying to help out. Mm -hmm. And so every problem we take on is usually related to a person. Everything we do in life is related to a person. You think of most everything you do, what motivates you, it's because there's some human being on the other mm -hmm. side of it that you're trying to either help out or do something for, you're trying to impress, you're trying to whatever it is, right? And I think what can help when you're, when you're in that problem-solving whirlpool is you start pacing yourself and saying, who am I trying to help? What, who am I trying to really help here? And if I'm trying to help that person, then what's the best way to help them out? And oftentimes, this is the headliner for me when I'm doing well, it's usually not me. I'm not that good at solving everybody's problems. There's yeah. usually somebody else out there or some other resource I don't have that can help that person who I love or who I care about help them better than me. Yeah. And that's when you start learning how to let go mm. and not just say no, but help direct people to something better. It's, it's the... It's the same idea that happens like when you visit, you know, Walmart or the supermarket, right? You don't expect the other person, like, where's the toothbrushes? And the person says, I don't know, and walks away. That makes you mad. Yeah. You don't expect them to necessarily know where the toothbrushes are either all the time. It's a big store, yeah. right? But if they say, I'm not certain, but let me get you to someone who can help right. you, you feel very validated. And yeah. they do too. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of it, it really goes back to what you just said relative to the purpose of leadership, which is growing others, mm -hmm. growing leaders. And, and that's something we lose sight of sometimes because when we're caught up in solving problems, we don't have time to pay attention to other people. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of it is, is capacity building mm -hmm. as, you know, building capacity or however you refer to it. Because, um, I mean, we use the phrase a lot here at Mountain West, you know, you, you uh, um, give people fish or you teach them, well, what is it? Yeah, yeah, you can teach a, you can give someone a fish or, or you can teach them to fish. Or teach them to fish. And I think a great um, part of leadership is teaching people to fish. And I think there's a tremendous sense of gratification and fulfillment because mm -hmm. you're, you're, role is to invest in people and to grow people. And I think that has a sustainability element too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're serving the organization, then you're building capacity in the organization yeah. and in the soil of the organization, which is its people. Yes. So um, I, I, I really understand, I appreciate what you're saying and I understand how hard it is to pivot and say, I'm not going to solve problems, mm -hmm. but in actuality, you're solving problems and you're investing in systems building because now you're teaching people how to solve problems and they're going to teach others how to solve problems. So it has that multiplier effect that you talked yeah. about. But I think it takes, uh, it takes intentionality to say, my why is to be a leader in mm -hmm. this organization and not just a manager mm -hmm. and just managing day to day. Yeah. 
Um, could you talk about that a little bit in terms of how you process that and how you transition from just managing to leading with intention? I think that um, with with intention, that's the key, right? Uh, that's a really good point you bring up, which is that ironically, you're you're hired in these situations to solve more problems. And you get in this horrible whirlpool where you're solving less problems because there's more of them coming at you. But once you change your mindset that my role is to teach other people how to solve these problems, you actually increase your own capacity to solve more problems because you have more people helping you out. Right. Right. And so typically in these positions, you know, as in operations or as you move up and taking more responsibility, you're coming into those positions and they're already pretty hot with problems that are going on. It's not like you walk in and there's this blank desk and what do you want to do today? Oh, I want to operationalize things. No, you walk in and there's already a list of things for you to solve, you know, that are hot and burning. Um, and so you have to prioritize, decide which are the ones that you do have to put on your, um, you know, your fireman's hat on and get Mm -hmm. done and then quickly grab other people to come with you, uh, and, and, and allow them to work with you to solve the problem. Look to see if they have the ability to do it themselves or if they need help. Uh, but resist very much to be, to do it all on your own. Hmm. You're going to go a little slower. You're going to fail at a couple of them. Uh, some of the problems are going to persist longer than you want them to. And some of them aren't going to be solved very well, but you've got to bring other people along with you along the way so that they feel the pain, but they also understand the problem better. They see it for what it is. And then you can also watch them and be with them and identify the skill sets and talents that they have. Some of them, they didn't even know they had. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like soil work to me. <laughs> yes, right. Exactly right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, soil work, definitely build, building people and, and seeing people. Our soil is our, mm-hmm. is our people. You know, this reminds me, when you talk about the whirlpool, it reminds me of uh, going back to the idea of don't let your day own you. You know, one of the things that I've done with a lot of young, young athletes is I've done little workshops or given brief speeches to teams. And, and I try to focus in on this idea of the power that they have, um, to, to change, uh, their environment. And typically it's because the whirlpool, as you've been calling it, Mm -hmm. controls us. The day controls us. And for a young athlete, the dynamic of their sport tends to overtake them. And so I do this activity where I have them list all the things that happen all the way down to just a game. Let's talk about all the things that happen in a game you don't have control over the refs, other people, this, that, the other. And they make a big list of all the circumstances that they don't have control over. And then I, I draw two versions of them. One version is, okay, well, this version of, of you lets all of that dictate how you feel and the choices that you make. Uh, you know, it's the whirlpool. You let the whirlpool mm-hmm. dictate you and, and how you feel and, and what you do. Um, and then there's this other version of you that I want you to try to access, which is all of that were to stay the same. If all of that were to stay the same, if that whirlpool were to continue as it is and nothing changed, what would happen if just you changed? You know, what, imagine right. if none of that were to change, but you changed. What would be the difference if you changed? And what would that change be? And for what, I'm, for what I'm hearing from you is, you know, that change would be how I'm seeing the potential in others around me. Um, and from a leadership perspective, you know, to grow these, these people. Mm-hmm. And again, even if we're not, leaders or in a role of influence uh, in, in the context that we're discussing, I still believe that we have those whirlpools and those circumstances in our lives. Yes. And if we can make this shift from from no longer letting it control us and just imagine for a second, kind of reimagine, what if all of this were to stay the same? And you can think of your life right now, all the circumstances we have from money to the people in it to uh, you name it, 
And if we list all that out and ask ourselves, what if none of that were to change? But what if I were to change? What would be the difference? Uh, and so I love that. I feel like that's what you're really, you know, what you're getting at at the heart. And then you provided these three, these three components. So remind me if I'm getting them wrong. Purpose versus policy. Versus policy. Mm-hmm. Multiplier versus diminisher. And then the last was around ca- accountability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk to us about how those are some of the changes that we do have control over that would affect the whirlpool. Okay. Yeah, because it's 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 really easy to walk into work the next day and go, okay, I'm uh, I'm not I'm not, I'm not going to be manipulated anymore by the environment around me. Um, I'm going to just focus on what I what I can control. And I will add this: this is I have a list literally on my desk, a list full of things that I need to do. Okay, <laughs> and so I feel a little yeah. bit like, how am I going to possibly get all these things done? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so you walk in and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this different, and I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to be a different person. I'm not going to solve problems. I'm going to help people grow. This is going to be great. And, you know, by about 11, 12 o'clock, you're hungry and you're thirsty. And the list is the list on your desk has only gotten longer. It didn't get shorter. Yeah. You know, you might have crossed out one or two, but really there's been five or six of them added on. And you get a little tired and you're a little worn out and you go, all right, well, it's tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll do this. You <laughs> just yeah, explained I, my morning. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've got a couple of fires that need to be done. I'll, 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 I'll redo this tomorrow. Right. And I mean, I say this because I live it every day too. I, you know, I'm still learning how to do this, but I have learned through groundwork and through some other um, ways that there are some key little systematic things that you can do that you can build on each day that over time really do make a difference in the mm-hmm. way you, the way you um, both do your work and in the way you help other people, the mm-hmm. way you cultivate that better soil, and then you and then you and then you help the seeds to grow better, mm-hmm. and you deal with conflict better. So the first one is purpose versus policy, and this is that one where uh, you you have to recognize that in your position, usually as a leader um, in the organization, your job is not to disseminate policy and to be the uh, the guru on all policies for the organization. You probably know a lot of those. But your goal is to focus on the purpose. You help your employees when they come in and they say, so what's the policy on this? Or how should we handle this sort of thing? It's not to recite to them, you know, chapter and verse of every policy the organization has. Instead, it's to help them discover what is the purpose for what they're trying to do that day. And when you do that, it unleashes for the employee, for the person the capacity and the ability to problem solve for themselves. Once they understand that it's okay for them to actually meet the objective of the organization, not just follow the policy, their mind opens up and they start thinking of very creative ways to solve problems, ways that you never thought of. So your role as a leader when you move into these positions is to stop being the policy machine, which is probably what you did in your previous That's positions. Right. Yep. That's how you got there because yep. you just knew the policy really well. Right. Great. You got that. Put it on your wall. I know the policies really well. And then ditch it. You know the policies. That's fine. You know, you know how to not break the rules. What you're doing is you're helping your employees learn how to focus on what are we really trying to accomplish here? Yeah. What, what is that... Um... What would a, you know, what does that look like uh, on the, on the ground in the moment? Okay. You know, let's say that there's a, there's an issue that pops up. Mm-hmm. We could call it whatever issue A. Yeah. And uh, what does it, what does it look like in that interaction with the individual from not focusing on policy to 
on on the purpose. Yeah, so yeah. it could be an individual experience. Right. It could be and, a meeting. I would encourage you to to share with us some real experiences oh, okay. that you've encountered in encountered in your work. Okay. Because the role that you're in actually involves a lot of policy. A lot of policy, developing policy, implementing policy. Yeah. But how do you lead uh given an example okay. that involves both? Yeah, so I'll I'll share one from um a couple years ago. Uh so I got a phone call. Justin, what's our policy on people hanging flags off of balconies at apartment complexes? And of course, it's very tempting to say, well, our policy is there should be no flags on, on uh, balconies. There's not supposed to be anything hanging on balconies. This is easy. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Phone call's over with. Problem solved, right? Uh, you have to resist that, right? I know what the policy was. So I said, what are you trying to solve? And then that's where the, the second trap usually occurs mm-hmm. for you as a, as a leader, because then they tell you the problem. And then you're forced to be able to figure out how to fit the policy into the situation. So you have to be careful not to do that. So the problem was, well, we have a man who, and this was, this was uh, right in the middle of um, COVID. And this was in um, uh, a lot of the protests, the, um, the protests going around the country with Black Lives Matter. And there was a man who was hanging an American flag upside down on a balcony and had written Black Lives Matter on it. And this is the time when this was like a new concept, right? Mm-hmm. Put yourself back a couple of years ago. And, uh, and then, of course, somebody above him who lived above him on their balcony had put a regular American flag up on there. And this was in a small town. And the local sheriff of the town had called up the apartment complex and said, why is there a flag hanging upside down on the balcony that everybody can see on the main road that says Black Lives Matter on there? Get that flag down. This is the problem I was presented with mm-hmm. at 5 p.m. on Friday, right? So what do you do with this? Well, in my old world, I would have started to probably, I would have started, you know, chapter and verse the policy and say, well, you go down there and tell them the policy and get this thing fixed. Well, we all know that's a big powder keg, right? It just wouldn't have been the smart thing to do. So I asked the leader, I said, what are we trying to do here? And the leader said, well, we're trying to create a great place for people to live where they can trust their neighbors and they can, they, they see themselves living in a community. Well, how do we go about doing that with this? Well, I don't know. That's why I'm calling you. All right. Yeah. Okay. Well, what would, what would you, if you, if you were in charge here, what would you do to try and create a great community with these two flags flying and a policy that says nothing should be on the, um, on the balconies. And I'll never forget what this, what this, uh, um, this regional director that I worked with, she said, well, she said, you know, we're okay with people hanging university of Oregon, Oregon state flags off the balconies. We don't have any problems with that on game day. And Christmas and other holidays and the 4th of July were okay with this kind of stuff. But why, why do we have a problem with this now? And maybe this person, maybe they have some kind of story that we need to know about. She said, I'm going to talk with my manager and we're just going to sit down and learn about their life. Before we make any decisions, we're just going to learn about what's going on. So I was kind of, I didn't know where to go with this. Like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah, you, you run with that. That's great. I mean, I thought it sounded like a good idea, but it also sounded like what could happen from this? I don't know. So they went and knocked on the door. They talked to this man. It turned out that he was um, uh, uh, a vet of, um, I think, the Afghanistan-Iraq war. He was a proud patriot of his country, but he also very felt very strongly about where the country was going with race relations. And he wanted to voice his opinion on this. And when they learned his story and that he had been a vet, they actually ended up connecting him with the sheriff of the town. And the two of them met and had a nice connection because the sheriff was also a vet. And they made this nice connection and the flag stayed up and everybody was proud of it. 
and the guy above, he had his flag too. And they connected the two neighbors seeing each other eye to eye. They felt very differently about some of these issues, but they also saw each other as humans. And so we have this policy that says no flags or anything should be hung on balconies. And that policy could have gotten in the way of what mattered most, mm -hmm. which is these people felt valued. And now, and instead of that, a community was created. None of this I came up with. I would have never come up with the solution, not in a hundred, not if I'd done this a hundred times over. But the solution that these two team members came up with on their own was because they were dealing with the problem themselves and they needed to know from me, not what the policy was, even though that's what they asked. They needed to know, was it okay for us, was it okay for us to see these people's human beings first before we cite to them their lease policy? Yeah. It's a great yeah, story. That's Thank awesome you. story. And it's really, you know, practically thinking where we're asking questions and putting on this mentality of trying to unlock the, you know, the potential that people have to mm -hmm. obviously solve the problems them themselves. And there's this element uh, that I think, especially someone in a leadership position that is responsible over, over an outcome, there's this idea of, uh, you know, whatever decisions made that we have to be, we have to be able to be accountable to the ramifications. And so leaders like yourself in this position, there was that moment where you had to let go of, what if this doesn't go very well? Because it could have gone very bad. And it, and it ultimately, part of being a leader is we have to deal with yes. the outcome and we have to take ownership of it. Yes. At the end of the day, it wouldn't have been their fault. Right. It would have come back to us and we have to take ownership, which I think is part of the fear of why we just, nope, we're going to stick to the policy because mm -hmm. I'm too worried about how this might come back on me. That's right. But that's the, that's the, that's what, that's the risk we have to take mm -hmm. is, are we going to to grow, risk growing people uh, with that in mind that maybe it won't go well and it's going to come back on me. But I think that's leadership. Yeah. That's, that's what leadership is, Absolutely. is we have to take responsibility for when things don't go well. Yeah. And we talk about in our framework that being a steward of our soil isn't just owning all the wonderful seeds that take root and all the wonderful fruit that grows and all the great outcomes and the great ideas. It's also taking ownership of the weeds and the things that don't go well. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's probably at least for me, one of the hard things to let go of when I look at my list and I'm thinking, well, I'm responsible for all of this at the end of the day and I don't want anything bad to come back on me. So I better do this. Yeah. Um, I think that's the fear that we have to let go of, but this is a great example of the potential that can happen, just unlocked potential um, that happens when right. you're willing to let right. go of that fear. Yeah. And what's interesting is that uh, by making yourself available and creating the time and space to engage in this conversation and to explore it further, to know mm -hmm. what the other person is thinking, because you saw them, you gave them, you empowered them, uh, quite frankly. Um, by default, you become a multiplier. I mean, that's the second yes. point that you had on your list, uh -huh. uh, Justin. By default, you become a multiplier because you've given people the opportunity to solve their own problems, to think creatively, to think critically. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. I think that's what people need to understand. You're still operating from a from an operational perspective. You're still looking at it from an operational perspective. You're weighing the pros and the cons. You're weighing the implications. But as we say in our framework, uh, dare to explore the social space. Social space. Uh. You know, I have a soccer analogy that's called the open space. We'll talk about that some <laughs> other time. But it's the same concept. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's sometimes we're given opportunities, but because we're so busy and so preoccupied with the stress of the day and the demands of the day, 
we miss opportunities. Yeah. And I think there is intentionality behind that for you to say, well, what do you think we should do? And that's a multiplier effect right. because that manager hopefully will employ the same strategy with his or her yeah. employees mm-hmm. and that's coworkers. That's right. That's right. The problem is, is that you, you bring up uh, Liz Wiseman's book, uh, Multipliers. And, and this really unlocked some keys for me because the problem is you can ask all day long, well, what do you think we should do back to the employee? Mm-hmm. And this employee has been hardwired with you for years to look for your answer. And employees, without even realizing, we all do it. I do it myself. We get very good at, at extracting out of our leaders the answers right, that we want, right. <laughs> right? And we'll work very hard at that. And you will find that your coworkers, your employees, your colleagues will work twice as hard at trying to extract from you what you think is the right answer and the solution as opposed to them coming up with it. Not because they're being nefarious or anything like that, but just because, well, you trained them that way. So it's you called got delegating rewind. up. Delegating up, right? That's You're the phrase up. that I use <laughs> for it okay, with a lot of my managers good. when I was working in leadership roles. Yeah. I said, be careful of uh, being delegated up. And I was always watching for it because I knew they were delegating up to me. Yeah. And you have to learn to push it back and yeah. say, what are you going to do about it? So what Liz Wiseman does in her book is she outlines some very practical things you can do in the heat of the moment, mm-hmm. either, well, in the heat of the moment or planned ahead of time when you go into a meeting or into interaction with it with another employee on, I call them games. She calls them tools, but they're games you can play with yourself mm-hmm. to make sure that you don't allow for the delegating up to occur. And instead you open up for the employee, their mind and their skill sets and combine it with their capabilities to get something mm-hmm. better. And so she lists this whole series of games. And at work, I will go into meetings sometimes playing these games. You know, like one of them is uh, Name the Genius, where you recognize that everyone is brilliant at something in your meeting. And you identify that. When the person says something or does something that's one of those, you say, that is what you're good at. You are terrific at that sort of thing. When you do this thing, it changes our company in these ways. What does that do for an employee? They're like, that's me. That's what I do. Yeah. I do that from here on out. And so then she or he, then they take on that mm-hmm. label and they take on that assignment to be that specialist for your organization. And people start going to that person to get advice on what to do for that particular problem. Another one, th- this one's a tough one, is extreme questions where you go into a meeting and everything you say has to end in a question mark. No statements. Mm-hmm. You have to ask questions. Now you can have statements that you say, but whatever you, when you finally stop talking, it has to end in a question mark. Right. And it, what it does is it forces people, it forces you to understand what other people are thinking and feeling and, and pull that out of them and allow them to share that and then to get from them more information. So there's tons of these yeah. games that you can play, uh, but they give you a way to go into a meeting with more than just, well, I'm just asking what I think we ought to do. You know, to give you like real skills that right, you can use to, right. to yeah, change tangi- the framework. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. tangible. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I love that. And uh, just thinking of the accountability piece, that last bullet point, there's, there's a lot we could say about that. But what first came to mind for me was when we when we do it this way, uh, when we're focused on growing people, we the accountability starts to become more around the purpose rather than yes. the policy. Yes. I think a lot of us and a lot of leaders get caught in just holding people accountable to policy mm-hmm. and to the things that there's, you know, all the things, right? Uh, but I think true accountability is in the purpose. Is are we being accountable to our purpose? 
Because there's a level of accountability that could have been held to that story with the flags. Yes. You did it. Great job. Glad that you you mustered good up job. the courage to go mm-hmm. have that tough conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, good for you. And they probably would have felt good about it. I, I did it. It was hard, but I did it. But then there's this whole other <laughs> level of interaction that happened that really speaks to the purpose of your organization. Mm-hmm. Um, we just don't have those those abilities to even see what accountability looks like to that yeah. without growing these, pe- these it's, people. It's way. so funny. We start out we, we start out organizations, a nonprofit or a business, because of a particular purpose that we're trying to resolve, fix, uh, uh, build upon. We don't start organizations because we have a particular policy that we're just love. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the policies are there for a lot of reasons, but it's the purpose. And as a leader, that's your objective is to keep everybody focused on that purpose. And so you play these games and you focus on purpose versus policy and you hold teams accountable to the purpose of the organization. Yeah, the purpose starts else. to get cloaked with all these policies. It and does. It just gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. For good reasons sometimes, mm-hmm. but you don't have to be the one that that that, that identifies the policy. Yeah. And yeah. policies, uh, just like ex- we expect people to adapt and adopt to different situations and circumstances, the same is true of policies. But what ends up mm-hmm. happening, just like the day ends up owning us, the policy ends up owning us too yeah. and our behavior and our mindset. And what we have to, to remember is that policies are created to define problems and define solutions to problems. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we create them. Yeah. Right? You're the agent of that, of that policy. You're the steward of that policy. And that's the part that I think we struggle with because there is an element of fear here. So uh, using your example of the flags on the balcony, mm-hmm. did that lead to a change in policy? Did nope. that lead to, so it just, so the policy stays yeah. because it serves a purpose, mm-hmm. but then you've put it in the context of the broader purpose, which mm-hmm. is seeing your um, residents, mm-hmm. honoring them, mm-hmm. building a sense of community. So you can always fall back on the policy, but you've created the space for some flexibility or leniency towards how we, how we interpret that. That's right. Some understanding. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. So I want to put that in the context of a business uh, in particular, and and um, how do you balance policies that are designed to, uh, especially in a in a for profit business, let's say, um, you know, how do you balance policy and practice, and trying to stay viable and profitable as an entity? from a leadership perspective, because there is easy, there is a tendency to want to just kind of jump in, roll up your sleeves and do the work yourself. But to maintain that leadership role in an environment where you're balancing all of those pieces mm-hmm. and you still have to, um, you know, make payroll, as they say, and yeah. the profit at the end of the day. Um, this happens also in a, in a, non, in a for-profit setting, yeah. right? Not just yeah. in a nonprofit environment. So how do you, yeah, how, how do you create an environment where you're, you're meeting the purpose of the organization, but it's also financially viable at the same time, yes. right? Within a world of limited resources, how do you actually have enough resources left over? Right. Sometimes, right? right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the policies, you know, um, you can spend your time looking at all of your policies to see if they align with your purpose. And that's really helpful. But I found there's lots of people in an organization that are always willing to, um, to uh, quote, chapter and verse on policies and then analyze policies and help you out with them. So you can do that. But as a leader, 
what you really, you can find people to help you with that. But as a leader, you want to spend your time making sure that your people have the ability to be creative to the purpose of the organization. And so you can ask some people to say, do our policies allow our people to be creative? You can do that. And the other one is you just help people. You go into those meetings as, as the leader. You might be the leader of that meeting or the, the identified leader of the meeting, but you don't have to lead the meeting. And your role is to help make sure that people you state, here's the purpose of this meeting. Here's how this purpose, here's how this meeting helps us achieve our objective as an organization. Mm. I turn to all of you to help us creatively find ways to meet the objective of the organization. And as long as it's a financially viable plan, then you should be able to find some really creative ways to do that. Easier said than done. Thank you. Well, I, I just think it's important for our listeners to understand that um, especially when I think about policy, we tend to think about public sector, yeah. you know, operations and procedures, but private sector entities, private employers also utilize policies to fulfill their purpose. Mm-hmm. And that purpose could be, you know, multi-dimensional in terms of yeah. seeing your employees, seeing your clients, and still at the end of the day, being profitable yeah. and successful. Those things are not exclusive of one another. That's that soil work, right? Yes. You've mm-hmm. got to do the soil. You've got to spend the time to create the environment where your employees can be seen as a valued person, as a key contributor to the organization, not as somebody who just enforces policies. Mm-hmm. The policies are there. So what you do is you do that soil work, right? Where you help them understand the objective of the organization and you do these games if you have to with yourself. Yeah to allow people to discover the genius within themselves. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So we have uh, just a couple minutes left, mm-hmm. but I want to bring it back, you know, with you kind of finishing by answering, you know, what does all of this have to do with going back to your story of getting water to the end of the oh, row? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tie that in. I mean, what, okay. what is, what does that mean? What does everything we've discussed have to do with that? Yeah. So the only time I saw my grandfather actually hold a pen or pencil in his hand ever was when we drove to the other side of the field and he would pull out this piece of paper out of his, uh, out of his little pocket, you know, shirt mm-hmm. pocket and pull out the, some old pen. I don't know where he got this pen. And he would mark it on the tick every single row that had water all the way in sufficiently and keep track of which ones did and which ones didn't on this piece of paper. And then we'd drive around to the other side. And if we had to, we'd, we'd rewater some of those rows to make sure that they got the water. And so... He came up with a system of measurement to measure himself, Mm. to measure his performance as a leader, to see if he was getting the water to the end of the row. And he put his time and his effort and his best skills, which is that was his writing, his best writing skills right there, into keeping track of the water at the end of the row. Uh And so as a leader, you've got to identify in your particular organization, what is it that makes this organization work? What is it? Is it a key relationship we have? Is it a particular resource? Is it a particular idea? Is it a product? Is it a way that we do our business? What is it? What is that thing that as a leader, I must make sure that we hold very valuable to us as a company and that I, as a leader, I keep my eye on this all the time. This is what I measure all the time because this little thing right here, this water getting to the end of the row tells me almost everything I need to know about the health of my organization right? And you might have a couple key metrics, but there's, there's usually not too many. And for my grandfather, it was the water to the end of the row. That told him if he'd have a reasonable yield at the end of the year or not. That yeah. told him everything yeah. you know about the company, mm-hmm. about his business. So 
you you do all these things, purpose versus policy, multiplier versus diminisher, holding teams accountable in, in, in certain ways. You do all these things to create time for yourself as a leader to be able to get the water to the end of the mm-hmm. row and to measure it. Yeah. So you have enough time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. The, thing that you, the one thing you can do that you should be doing. Yeah. And I think yeah. that the, the tie here is to, you know, this idea of developing people instead of problem solving is, mm-hmm. is we have to know what that water is as yes. leaders. Otherwise we get caught problem solving. Yes. But when we know what the water is, when we know what the why is, then it makes it a lot more, it makes it easier for us, helps us be more intentional in focusing more on developing people rather than the problem solving. Yeah. It's not hard as a leader. Once you identify what your water is, you almost feel compelled to spend your time on yeah. it because you, you go, that is what makes this organization work. I have to spend my time on this. And so then it gives you a reason to do all these other things yeah. to help to help mm-hmm. uh, grow your people mm-hmm. because you want to spend a lot of time on your water because that's what makes everything else work for the organization yeah. Yeah. in your role. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, quite often we talk about the things that we can and cannot control. I think time, quite frankly, is one thing that most leaders do have control over. Mm-hmm. But you have to be intentional like your grandfather was. And I just, I love the story because um, he figured out where to spend his time mm-hmm. that maximizes the effectiveness of his business. Mm-hmm. And, and that is pure intentionality. Yes. Is saying what I'm doing isn't working. It's like going through the change filter almost and saying, you know, I need to do something different. And it starts with me. And he figured out that time where he spent his time could have the most tremendous impact on his business and mm-hmm. his profitability and, and his success and his employees. Right. Right. So I think that is a, a tremendous um, skill in my view is how do we utilize our time? Cause we all have lists that we make and sometimes we have to triage and determine where we're going to spend that our time that day. Um, I just love this concept of not letting, letting the day, not let the day control you. Not let yeah. the day control us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what it comes down to with, with the list that's sitting on my desk right now is, I mean, I have to ask myself a question, which is everything that we're talking about. It's the question that, you know, um, my leader now, uh, Jason always asks me, which is, what is, what are the things that only you can do? <laughs> um, because those usually relate to the water, you know, what's yeah. the water and, and, and what are the things that only you can do? Um, and and then focusing everything else on the list and developing, you know, others to do it. So this has been a great uh, conversation. I think we could keep we could keep going. Maybe down the road we'll have a a phase uh, episode two. episode two. Justin Allen. We'll see if I really can do all these things. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a process, and I, I do feel a little um, sheepish a little bit because I. Uh, I'm not perfect at this. I make yeah. a lot of mistakes every day on this. And I think it's fairly obvious to all the people I work with and love. And they could probably think of a lot of like, I can think of some successful examples. They can probably think of nine or 10 others of where it didn't work out just in the past couple days. Uh, but as long as we all recognize together, we're trying to do this and we're all trying to, to, to accomplish the purpose of the organization first. Uh, and that we want to enrich each other and and find that skill set that each other has and put it into um a, a way where they can use it as a as a key capability for the organization then it usually tends to work out a little better i yeah. feel a little bit better yeah. about myself yeah absolutely yeah. i agree 
Well, a lot to think about for all of you listeners out there. This has been a a fun episode. We've talked about quite a bit. Uh, And again, I, I hope that you don't have to be in a leadership position to, to learn from, from these conversations. Um, I certainly think there's takeaways for everyone here um, and things that we can do better to take more control over our days and our, and our lives. And, and uh, I, I typically not typically, but I often uh, live a a transactional life. I call it, which is where I respond to the day Mm. and, uh, and I just, you know, and that's it. And, and it, it's it's not fun and it's stressful. It's overwhelming. It's exhausting. Um, but like what you said earlier today, when when are we at our best? I think when I'm at my best is when um, I stop doing that and I get lost in in the the, the true needs around me. Um, starting with you know my family and those that I work with. So and then the, those of uh, the organization that I'm a part of. So great topic uh thank you so much justin for joining salam as always thank you for thank you for joining in the studio and thank and, you uh yeah it's just been a, a joy so yeah, the total pleasure for me thank you very much yeah thank you justin thank you. and thank you listeners any new listeners uh thanks for joining and and returning listeners we hope you continue to enjoy our our show but with that take care and be safe until next time uh, we'll see you later <laughs>